Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Charles Van Doren, Herbert Stemple, and the American quiz show scandal of the 50s. Now let's continue with our story. Albert Friedman was eventually indicted for perjury based on his testimony to the grand jury that he never gave contestants questions in advance. Nevertheless, in January of 1959, Charles Van Doren testified before the Manhattan grand jury and also denied any impropriety or advanced discussion of questions. Among the information elicited was a review of questions that he was asked during his appearances, some of which he was now unable to answer, a failure he chalked up to an inability to remember subjects like dogs, which he crammed for and then forgot. For the moment, Van Doren continued his work at Columbia and on the Today Show, but this respite was brief. The grand jury continued to hear testimony, and Friedman, who was facing a perjury charge, and Enright reapproached Stone. Friedman agreed to appear again and essentially recant his earlier testimony and discuss specifics about game show contestants and how he helped rig appearances of most of the high-profile champions, including Charles Van Doren. His testimony was the last heard by the grand jury in May of 1959. On July 10th, Judge Schweitzer would discharge the jury and presumably publicly release its presentment a detailed report concerning the specific allegations that were heard during the grand jury proceedings. As no indictments were involved, this presentment was the only enumeration of the quiz show impropriety. Surprisingly, Judge Schweitzer ordered the documents sealed, a development that again catapulted the quiz show scandal to the front page. The inference that the networks and game show producers had finally succeeded through their attorneys in leaning on Schweitzer and stopping the public from hearing about the depth of duplicity involved in game show rigging. Although it was never proven, Joseph Stone believes that Schweitzer was influenced by Dan Enright, and eventually the judge would have to resign from the bench over other unrelated impropriety. The ensuing uproar finally brought the attention of the U.S. Congress. By late summer, U.S. Representative Orrin Harris announced that his subcommittee on legislative oversight would investigate allegations concerning quiz show rigging, which he described as potentially a massive fraud perpetuated on the American people. It was this development that actually officially involved Richard Goodwin for the first time. He and a colleague were dispatched to New York to legally secure the minutes of the grand jury, a request that was ultimately granted. Joseph Stone was also dispatched to Washington, D.C. as a special consultant to the committee. After reviewing the grand jury minutes, Goodwin returned to New York to interview various individuals connected to the game show industry, including Charles Van Doren who Goodwin met with personally. 
Van Doren again denied receiving any assistance during his appearances and struck Goodwin as sincere and courteous. His demeanor was so convincing that Goodwin initially was deeply concerned that perhaps the committee was about to smear Van Doren publicly for something he hadn't done. But then he contacted Herbert Stemple, who gladly agreed to an interview. During an initial lengthy meeting, Stemple again described his entire 21 ordeal and for several weeks had additional conversations by telephone in which he aggressively inquired as to when someone would actually make these accusations public. Stemple's determination made Goodwin a believer. After he read Albert Friedman's grand jury testimony, he was convinced. Van Duren was lying. Still, it would take a while, but ultimately a lengthy process to unmask Van Doren slowly began. On October 6, 1959, Representative Harris called his House subcommittee to order and immediately announced that the panel should be able to complete its work within a week. The very first witness was Herbert Stemple, who methodically detailed every nuance of the choreographed nature of his appearances. Unlike Senate hearings, television cameras were strictly barred from the House of Representatives by TV-adverse House Speaker Sam Rayburn. Other contestants followed, most notably James Snodgrass, with admissions and revelations that were front-page news and gripped the nation. Less sensational testimony from network officials and ad agency employees followed. Eventually, both Dan Enright and Albert Friedman testified, with both admitting the rigging and Enright taking responsibility. By then, NBC was sufficiently alarmed about the potentially explosive public relations situation surrounding Charles Van Doren. Herbert Stemple's testimony alone was enough to, to prompt a high-level meeting of network executives who confronted Van Doren and his lawyer. They issued an ultimatum that Van Doren could either testify in front of the committee or be suspended from the network. Van Doren still clung to denials of impropriety and, prompted by the pressure he was receiving from the network, sent a telegram to Congress stating that he had already spoken with committee investigators and testified in front of a grand jury that he had not received any prior assistance. Thus far, any contestants who had appeared in front of the committee had done so voluntarily. There was a reluctance to drag witnesses in front of such a proceeding prompted by the excesses of McCarthyism. But Richard Goodwin had warned Van Doren. Despite the fact that they suspected him of dishonesty, they would not subpoena him unless he publicly proclaimed his innocence and forced them to compel his testimony. But Van Doren no longer had much choice. It was either testify or be fired. Before assessing the committee for three weeks, Harris publicly entered Van Doren's telegram into the record and privately sent Dick Goodwin to New York with a subpoena. Van Doren and his wife had disappeared to western Massachusetts, but his lawyer meekly assured Goodwin that Van Doren would testify when the committee reconvened. Although it was clear to insiders that Van Doren would appear in front of Congress and finally honestly admit to the truth, the New York tabloids blared front-page questions as to his whereabouts and speculation about what would happen next. On October 23rd, the magnitude of national interest was underlined at a presidential news conference when President Eisenhower was asked to comment on the scandal and responded, quote, fixing TV shows was a terrible thing to do to the public, unquote. And he added that he had directed the attorney general to investigate the matter and make specific recommendations to prevent such an incident from occurring in the future. The House subcommittee reconvened on November 2nd. At 10 a.m., Charles Van Doren and his attorney, Carl Rubino, entered the caucus room where the hearings were conducted. 
He had spent the previous evening, accompanied by his wife and father, at what must have been a very surreal dinner party at the home of Dick Goodwin, as this event was also attended by Prosecutor Joseph Stone. Stone, at the request of Van Doren and Rubino, had already met privately in New York in late October. At this meeting, Van Doren finally admitted his dishonesty before the grand jury and apologized to Stone. Even before Van Doren's public testimony, the prosecutor was already mulling perjury charges and the socializing was both personally and professionally awkward. As the two men took their seats at the witness table, flashbulbs exploded and the standing room only crowd of 1,000 craned their necks to get a glimpse of the now seated Van Doren. His father and wife sat in a special reserved section nearby, but unlike the version presented in Quiz Show, in which John Totoro crawled on his hands and knees to gain better visibility, the real Herb Stemple was also seated in their vicinity, in the same section. It was a dramatic moment, and Van Duren certainly added to the drama with a lengthy and poignant opening statement. I would give almost anything I have to reverse the course of my life in the last three years, I cannot take back one word or action. The past does not change for anyone, but at least I can learn from the past. I have learned a lot in those three years, especially in the last three weeks. I've learned a lot about life. I've learned a lot about myself and about the responsibilities any man has to his fellow men. I've learned a lot about good and evil. They are not always what they appear to be. I was involved deeply in a deception. The fact that I, too, was very much deceived cannot keep me from being the principal victim of that deception, because I was its principal symbol. There may be a kind of justice in that. I don't know. I do know, and I can say it proudly to this committee, that since Friday, October 16th, when I finally came to a full understanding of what I had done and of what I must do, I have taken a number of steps towards trying to make up for it. I have a long way to go. I have deceived my friends, and I had millions of them. Whatever they're feeling for me now, my affection for them is stronger today than ever before. I am making this statement because of them. I hope my being here will serve them well and lastingly. Bedlam ensued as many of the present newspapermen and media ran for the exits, attempting to get ahead of the rest of the pack in presenting the headline news that Van Dorn was admitting to fixing 21. However, his statement continued with a complete description of his interactions with Dan Enright and Al Friedman. Along the way, he spoke of fear, confusion, and uncertainty in an attempt to justify the many occasions in which he continued to lie about what he had done, even offering the rationalization that his role on NBC as a cultural contributor gained through subterfuge was a far cry from the usual diet of mayhem, murder, and rape that typically appeared on television. He also testified that he did not wish to betray the teaching profession and the many teachers and school children who had sent him letters of praise, knowing that such an admission would be extremely disappointing and disaffecting. In the end, it was a realization that, in his own words, quote, that the truth is always the best way, a realization that actually was prompted by the network insisting that he testify or face dismissal. Van Doren's self-effacing and heart-tugging preamble contained such words as lost, naive, troubled, foolish, and horror-struck. Certainly within the chamber, it was quite effective. Congressman Walter Rogers thanked him for his soul-searching confession and added that the American people are for forgiveness when a man comes in and tells the truth. 
Chairman Harris practically apologized for his subpoena and added that anyone, regardless of how it hurts, who comes to tell the whole truth in a matter so important to the American people and the public interest is to be highly complimented. Even in his worst moment of disgrace, Van Doren, after a some cursory questions from the committee, was trailed out of the caucus room by a mob. An even bigger throng of camera crews waited outside as Herb Stemple watched from a distance, solitary and ignored. Unfortunately, Van Doren's employers at NBC were not as forgiving. When he arrived at his New York home, he was informed by reporters that the network intended to fire him. Columbia had already accepted his resignation. He would not return to the school's campus for 23 years, the day his son graduated. Public sentiment quickly transformed from adulation to unpopularity, embodied in Time magazine, now characterizing Van Doren and his testimony as riddled with pomposity, self-pity, and self-dramatization. The Atlanta Journal added that the affair was the result of the frantic urge to make a fast buck, a kind of disease that's eating away at the moral tone of our nation. Richard Goodwin quickly resigned from his subcommittee position and went to work for the Kennedy presidential campaign. He would spend two decades in public service, working closely with Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Although public attention to the quiz show scandal diminished after Van Duren's testimony, the legal machinery continued to grind. Eventually, 19 individuals, including Charles Van Duren, were indicted and pled guilty to misdemeanor charges of second-degree perjury. Although Joseph Stone wished to continue the investigation of attorneys who advised their clients to cover up the scandal, he was advised by Frank Hogan to wrap up the investigation. As to Dan Enright, Jack Barry, and Al Friedman, and the specific fixing of the programs, no laws were actually broken, so they were never prosecuted. Although Congress, in 1960, eventually passed legislation declaring the intentional fixing of game shows as illegal, such enforcement could not be retroactive. The adjudication of the perjury indictments dragged on for an extended period as even a conviction for a minor offense meant a criminal record. Problematic especially for such an individual as Vivian Nearing, a practicing attorney. Eventually, after it was clear that the DA's office would pursue the charges with actual trials, the defendants, including Charles Van Doren, pled guilty and received suspended sentences and no probation. Nearing was disbarred for six months, but eventually successfully resumed her legal career. No network executive or company sponsor ever publicly acknowledged any involvement in the scandal, and despite the belief in legal circles that they had to have known, the most powerful individuals involved escaped any real scrutiny. Legally, Jack Barry and Dan Enright did face some sanction for their role in the quiz show scandal. Although they were unable to continue their high-profile game show production ventures, both men continued to work in entertainment, Barry in various broadcasting roles on camera, and Enright producing programming in Canada. By the early 70s, both had resurrected their careers and even reformed the Barry Enright Production Company. In 1972, Barry would appear as the MC of the CBS Network's The Joker is Wild game show, the production company also producing the successful relaunch of Tic Tac Doe, featuring MC Wink Martindale. While these two shows ran successfully in syndication for many years, Barry Enright produced several other game shows and even got involved in motion picture production. Through a family connection, Charles Van Doren was able to get a job at Encyclopedia Britannica and relocated to Chicago. 
There, he quickly slid into self-imposed obscurity, refusing interviews or media requests of any kind, and for two decades stayed out of the public limelight entirely. Herbert Stemple's immediate 21 aftermath was professionally and personally quite unpleasant. His relatives initially felt that he had brought disgrace upon the family, and he was ashamed of his initial ethical lapse. He felt also that somehow he was perpetually blamed as the person who had destroyed Charles Van Doren, when in fact it was Van Doren who destroyed himself. New York University refused to allow him to continue to work on his doctorate, and he had to return to the hosiery business before eventually teaching in a public school. In 1984, he landed a job with the New York City Department of Transportation in its litigation support unit, which fights injury claims against the department. Stemple's work consisted of testifying, imparting relevant information during the hearing process. He also refused all interviews, and the entire quiz show incident would have probably receded as an obscure footnote of television in the 50s, if not for a process that began in 1990. Julian Cranin, an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, became interested in the quiz show scandals as a film topic in 1990. Coincidentally, Herbert Stemple, who routinely received and rejected interview requests, suddenly had a change of heart. About the same time that Cranin began to research the topic, Stemple told his wife that the next person that contacted him about the incident would get the story. Cranin was able to obtain interviews from Stemple, Dan Enright, Al Friedman, and many others who had not spoken publicly about the scandal for many years. One notably absent participant was Jack Barry, who died of a heart attack suffered while jogging in Central Park in 1984. Cranin almost pulled off the coup of getting Charles Van Doren to participate, but after an initial agreement, Van Doren's wife convinced him to back out. The subsequent documentary appeared on the PBS American Experience series to great fanfare and stirred the interest of Robert Redford, who had always wanted to make a film about the quiz show scandal. Probably understanding that such a controversial venture might reignite tremendous hostility, legal and otherwise, from some of the story's protagonists, Redford aggressively courted many of the scandal's high-profile participants to aid in the production of the film. Herb Stemple eagerly agreed to take part and received $30,000. Richard Goodwin and Julian Cranin received producer's credits and payments. Cranin recruited four, among other reasons, to see if he could finally convince Charles Van Doren to also serve as a consultant, mostly merely to give his stamp of approval. Van Doren came as close as reviewing a contract that would pay him $100,000 and seemed willing until members of his family, especially his wife, vehemently objected. Ultimately, he refused. The film Quiz Show, starring Ray Fiennes, John Turturro, and Rob Morrow, was a widely publicized big-budget Hollywood production that returned the spotlight to the 21 scandal and all of its participants specifically. Initially a critical success, which received several Academy nominations, including, ironically, Best Picture, as well as a Best Director nomination for Redford, the film was a box office bomb that received a fair share of criticism and remains controversial in film circles even today. Supposedly a film about ethics and loss of innocence, the production completely omitted the New York investigation and compressed the timeline of the film so that Dick Goodwin is chiefly responsible for the fix's undoing. 
with the usual fabrications and simplifications involved in all Hollywood docudramas especially evident, the portrayals of Herb Stemple as a geeky nerd and Albert Friedman as an evil, immoral puppet master were additionally simplistic. The film was supposedly adapted from a single chapter of Richard Goodwin's memoir, Remembering America, A Voice from the Sixties. Not only is Joseph Stone completely ignored in the film, his definitive and exhaustive 350-page book on the scandal was also omitted. This omission and treatment was so egregious that Goodwin's wife, the eminent journalist Doris Kearns Goodwin, actually contacted Stone by telephone to apologize and explain that her husband had nothing to do with the script. Stone, by now a retired criminal judge, was predictably cranky. He responded by saying, If he's so sorry, why didn't he call me? In the New York Times, he described the film as a tawdry hoax. Even angrier was Albert Friedman, who called the film more rigged than the quiz shows themselves. Although Friedman did get involved in coaching some contestants, he never met Herb Stemple and certainly did not interact with him in the manner depicted. Having gotten an advanced copy of the script, Friedman contacted Redford and offered corrections. He was rebuffed by the director's attorney. Hardly the one-dimensional figure presented, Friedman actually became the fall guy whose career was completely destroyed. Moving to London, he became involved with Bob Guccione's General Media, launching Forum magazine, and helping to operate a firm which published such titles as Omni, Compute, Longevity, Four-Wheeler, and Penthouse. Probably to additionally denigrate Friedman, the film's epilogue, which describes what happened to the characters in the movie, devotes one sentence to the former producer. Quote, Albert Friedman works for Penthouse Magazine, unquote. A description that is both inaccurate and incomplete. Friedman was irate enough to consider suing before the reality of the expense of litigating successfully against a major entity like the Disney Corporation was explained to him. He was especially miffed by Redford's attempt to characterize the quiz show scandals as a major loss of America's innocence and the beginning of a descent that led directly to Vietnam, Watergate, and a general development of a more cynical society. Whenever interviewed, Friedman would note sardonically that he did not know he wielded such power and was somehow responsible for the excesses of the Johnson and Nixon administrations. Worth noting is that America had already endured a Great Depression, World War II, and McCarthyism, and the television industry had undergone an agonizing period of blacklisting. The 50s were hardly an age of innocence. Throughout the hoopla surrounding Redford's film, Charles Van Doren maintained his silence. His wife would handle any media requests by firmly stating that he had no comment and would not grant any interviews. Through the years, Van Doren was able to reconstruct his career in a fashion that probably resembled what it would have been had he not appeared on 21. By 1990, he had already written several books with such titles as The History of Knowledge and The Joy of Reading, Intellectual Treatises Worthy of a College Professor, and Van Doren resumed teaching at the University of Connecticut. He occupied the family home in Cornwall, traveled extensively, and settled into leisurely retirement. Then in 2008, like Herbert Stemple, Charles Van Doren seems to have had a change of heart. He penned a lengthy article for the July 28, 2008 issue of The New Yorker entitled, All the Answers. 
Here he fully described his enlistment and coaching by Albert Friedman, the dizzying experience of becoming a nationwide celebrity, and his description of the only oblique conversation he ever had with his father about his 21 performance. He emphasized that unlike the film depiction by Paul Schofield, his father never discussed the incident with him either before or after the revelations in front of Congress. He also described the trauma of the investigation and the process that led to his congressional testimony, his ensuing career, and the attempts by producers to get him involved in related film projects. The article contains a strange combination of emotions that never fails to mention whatever humiliations Van Duren suffered along the way and seems to be an attempt to settle scores with especially Joseph Stone. Van Doren glosses over his many occasions of public and private dishonesty and omits one action that today has been expunged from the historical record. Immediately following his defeat on 21, Van Doren signed a brief contract to work for Barry Enright Productions. He quickly asked out of this position when NBC came calling, but in his brief tenure he did arrange for his brother John Van Doren to appear on the Barry Enright summer replacement game show High Low. John Van Doren won thousands of dollars, exhibiting a similarly astonishing breadth of knowledge. Unfortunately, this too was a completely choreographed fraud and part of Charles Van Doren's lengthy negotiation with Congress and the New York DA's office over his ultimately truthful testimony and plea bargain contained assurances that his brother be left alone. This affair certainly indicates that Charles Van Doren was not a normally honorable man who had a momentary lapse of reason, but something else entirely. The New Yorker article was Van Doren's only public statement concerning the quiz show scandal. He died on April 9, 2019 in Connecticut, near his home of Cornwall, aged 93. Most of all of the other participants in the Great American Quiz Show scandal have also passed away, with one prominent exception. Still living in Forest Hills, Queens, New York, Herb Stemple resides in an apartment not far from where he lived in 1959, his phone number publicly accessible. In his 90s, long retired from the Department of Transportation, Stemple says he always knows when the film Quiz Show has appeared on television. Invariably, frequently in the middle of the night, his phone will ring and the caller will ask, what film won the award for Best Picture of 1955? Stemple always answers Marty, wishes the caller a good evening, and hangs up the telephone. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the quiz show scandal. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, Primetime and Misdemeanors by Joseph Stone and Tim Yohn, and Remembering America, A Voice from the 60s by Richard Goodwin. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also, please listen to over 50 episodes on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm -hmm.